Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest feels he will have done his job well if no one talks about his work. As head of courts and horticulture at the All England Club, Neil Stubbley oversees the team that prepares the grass courts at Wimbledon. Our philosophy, certainly on the ground staff, is that we want the grass courts to be the canvas of a picture, but the players paint, paint the picture. So as long as no one says anything about the grass, then we know that we've done our job. While the club hosts tennis and croquet through much of the summer, it's very much the two weeks of Wimbledon that get the attention of both the outside world and the ground staff. As much as a player now looks at diet, training, sleeping, you know, where the red zone is, when you should and shouldn't train, we're doing exactly the same with our grass plants and making sure that when our athlete, which is the grass, goes into its competition, which is the championships, it's as, it's as healthy as a Djokovic, it's as healthy as a Federer for day one of the championships. And then we've got to survive that 13 days like the players have to. Neil has been working at Wimbledon since 1995, and after becoming head groundsman in 2012, he took on oversight of the entire facility three years ago. One of the things that we always try to achieve here is that if you come to the championships, we want you to leave thinking, wow, there is nowhere else on the planet like this. You know, we want that once-in-a-lifetime experience for someone. While you listen, visit credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Neil Stubley, the head of courts and horticulture at the All England Club on Credentials Only. Neil, typically people use some very reverential terms to describe Wimbledon. How would you describe that playing surface that you have there at Wimbledon? Uh, I'm probably a little bit biased, but I would say it's, we strive to get as close to perfection every year as we possibly can. I, I think the, the most enjoyable part of the job is, is that because it's a natural living surface, we are in control of around about 70% of what it wants to do and then the other 30 percent is controlled by mother nature and that's the bit that is our challenge you know each year depending on what the spring has been like how the weeks leading up to the championships actually are will determine what the final state of the grass is in that final um in that before we get to the start of the championship so it's just trying to sort of navigate down that road to make sure that when people turn up every year, it looks exactly the same as it did the previous year, but the challenges are always different. So that's what you know keeps us coming back every year. You know, most of my staff um, have been here. You know, once you get here, you just don't leave because it's just such a big challenge. So, um, and just to see the reaction that we get from people that come here um, just just makes it worth that while. The championships courts, they'll get used over 13 days and play probably around eight, nine hours a day. So around about 100 hours of play. How many hours will go into preparing those courts over the course of the year? So once the championships finishes, because we're a private members club, we'll then reopen the courts um, around about a day, and a, day, a day and a half after championships finishes. We then just take stock. We just add a little bit more water than we normally would during champs, and then we just start reopening them again for members. Then we'll sort of 
kind of have more tournaments. It'll be members play. We'll have um, external tournaments going in. The Road to Wimbledon, which is a, an under-14s tournament. Um, the UK veterans then come uh, for a seven-day tournament, plus club matches as well. So it's quite, it's quite a busy, intense August and September that we have. So um, I would say probably by the end of the season, each court probably getting up to around about I'd say probably about 500 hours of play per court for, throughout that season. Um, obviously, the 80-odd, the 80-hundred hours that we get during the championships is, is very intense because of, um, because of the challenges that come with it. So, but we're very mindful. We almost work around about 18 months in advance. So what would normally typically be, say, the, the March and April that have just gone, you're always constantly looking at, what state the grass is coming out of winter, how successful has the previous year's renovation been, um, is it how it should look? If it is, then great. If you think it could have been slightly different, uh, you then kind of think to yourself, right, what am I going to do for this year's renovation to make sure that it's going to be slightly different for next year? So you're always kind of working a year in advance of yourself about what sort of health the plant is. And then from March through till sort of May, when we open up the grass courts, it just gives us that window for, for doing slight tweaking of, of courts because the 38 grass courts are spread over uh, 42 acres. The most southerly grass court and the most northerly grass court is, is best part of three quarters of a mile away. So they all have their own little microclimates. So each court, although you, in principle you try and use them and um, maintain them all the same, each one will have a slight um, variation in its own little um, plan of action, depending on whether it's one of the big stadium courts or, or say, Court 18 that's got the broadcast centre wrapped around it, um, or the, the, the southern courts that have sort of opened up. So there's all these different challenges that sort of go in towards it. You mentioned renovation, yep. and that, that starts, what time of year does that start, and what is that renovation process? So... It, the basic renovation for, for a court here at Wimbledon is, is that once the championships is finished, um, centre number one only get used for the tournament. Um, so we, we tend to let them rest for a couple of weeks just for most of the guys to get their energy back, um, sort of start getting pre prepared and ready for the rest of the grass court season on the other courts. And then we start our renovation programme. So in essence, what we do is we, we kind of get a, a a tractor-mounted um, aerator. We then punch loads of holes into the surface just to alleviate, get a lot more oxygen and air back in through the soil. Um, and then we'll shave off the top. So we'll take all the grass material off um, back to the soil. We'll then cultivate um, the top sort of five millimeters of soil, um, re-level it, reseed it, and then grow it back in. So that process takes about a day per court. Um, and then with, this, with the type of irrigation that we've got, and because it's in the summer, um, we put a nutrition program in, and, and then we can just re-germinate the new seed, and that's normally up within five to seven days. And then once that's up, we then start managing the, the grass, uh, start reducing the height of cut, redo the levels, and, and then just what we, what we call putting it to bed, which basically means it's the end of the renovation for that particular court, and, and then we just put it onto a new program of, a sort of a, a maintenance regime to take it through autumn, winter, back into spring. And then we just slowly go through 
um, all of the grass courts uh, on site. Um, and we normally take sort of three or four out a week through August and September. So by, by late September, we're kind of getting to the last half dozen courts. Um, and then we're just putting the last ones to bed, making sure that they're all regrown, uh, they're all healthy. There's a nice density to the to this grass sward, uh, and then taking it through winter, just doing the, the normal um, sort of healthy maintenance of the grass. We kind of look at grass the same as we'd kind of look at ourselves. So we try not to overcomplicate things. It's very easy in the modern world with all of the new sort of machinery technologies and, and all the different sciences to actually get bogged down in too much science. Um, you kind of, if you use the, 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 the essence of, of what a living um, plant or human is like, as long as you've got a, you know, a good nutrition program, you're well hydrated, um, you're not overpopulated, then that all goes towards something being really healthy. And we do the same with the plant. We have a very um, strict regime for nutrition. Um, we then can constantly measuring the, the moisture in the soil to make sure that there's just the right amount of moisture available for the plant. And then we make sure that we don't actually put too much grass. So you can have a lawn that's got too much grass on it. The plants are then out competing each other for, for the nutrition. So it actually then starts to make the plant even weaker by having too much grass on it. So it's having the right amount to make sure that each plant isn't having to outcompete each other to, to kind of get the nutrition that it needs. That then takes you towards a more healthier plant. Um, and, and the healthy plant, like a healthy athlete, can actually withstand more play and, and for longer. And that's why certainly in, the, in, the, in recent years, you've seen the grass courts, the longevity of the courts through the championships getting better and better. And it's just because of that technology that's out there and and you know making that conscious effort that we try not to overcomplicate things too much when it gets to be winter time do you need to be protecting the courts i mean london doesn't have a, a harsh winter but it's still not exactly pleasant and sunny no but I, I think when you're using uh cool season grasses you almost have it almost needs that cycle it, it almost needs to go dormant the grass itself um if you're constantly forcing the growth, and you see that in, a, in some of the winter sports now, like in the NFL or in the Premier League football, if you've got a natural turf surface now, you'll see a lot of these winter sports that have got the grow lights under soil heating, and they're constantly having to push the plant to, to grow and to survive in a time of year where it normally wouldn't. So I think we're quite fortunate that because we're a, winter, a summer sport, we can afford to let the plant go dormant. So if there's going to be a frost, that's great. We want the frost to get into the soil. It, it sort of decompacts the soil for us. So we're not having to aerate it ourselves because if you've got the right amount of moisture in the soil and you get a nice heavy frost, you get that nice heave into the soil. Um, and again, if it snows, we'll put a preventative chemical down to stop a certain diseases sort of, um, sort of encroaching under the snow. Um, so we don't really do much. We just let nature take its course. And the good thing about that is that the plant then starts to have to defend for itself. So as long as you are maintaining the grass and making it hardy, it should really um, withstand certainly the win winters that we get in London. It's like you say, we're, if we get half an inch of snow in a winter, we're lucky. 
which is quite handy really because if we get half an inch of snow in London the whole of London comes to, to gridlock so we don't really want too much snow if we can help it. <laughs> Having visited in in the winter in November I did see those lights that you mentioned yep. um, out on some of the courts. What are those and what are they doing? So they're essentially, they are um, high, high pressure sodium lights. So they give off a thousand kilowatts of, of light. The light that it gives off is the light spectrum for the plant. So you'll, you'll notice that the bigger and better these, these new multi-sport stadiums are getting built, the more... Uh, shade that you'll get in the, in the stadiums year round and the more or the less airflow you'll get. So the two big main ingredients for having a healthy grass is making sure that there's a good airflow and there's good natural light. A plant needs a certain amount of um, micromoles, which is the, the light spectrum, but to become healthy. Now in certain conditions that you can't help, whether it be on a golf course because it's tree lined, um, in a big stadium because because in the winter the sun's kind of a lot lower than it is, we then have to supplement that type of light. So in the big stadiums and in, and in some of our courts where um, light levels are low, we then just supplement it with um, with artificial light. And with and the good thing about um, high pressure sodium as well is that it gives off a little bit of heat. So where you're getting those shady areas, even on a, a, a sort of a, a nice sunny winter's day the parts of the grass that are actually in the sunlight are actually getting more exposure than the, the, the areas that are in, in shade. So we're just trying to equal up the, the, the sort of rebalance the, um, so all of the court and all of the grasses kind of gets the same treatment. So we're just upping the light levels, upping the, the temperature just so we can keep it normal. And again, we also supplement it with, with air, with fans as well. So, um, we have fans that, that help circulate air movement, um, which helps with, with sort of disease risk management and just means that we don't have to rely on um, pesticides and chemicals as much. What is the blend of grass? So we are 100% perennial ryegrass. So back in the, back in the early 90s, historically, uh, summer sports have always been a creeping grass, either with bents or fescues, because it's nice and tight. Uh, it's, it's a nice, smooth grass. It's the grasses that most um, golf greens um, are made out of. And it, it's just a nice, pure, good grass. The problem with it is, is that it doesn't particularly like being dried out. And it doesn't like a lot of foot traffic, which in tennis is everything that you get. So back in the 90s, we kind of um, joined forces with um, the STRI, the Sports Turf Research Institute. They do a lot of work in the sports world on different soils, grasses that are best for certain sports. So we went into collaboration with them to sort of said to them, you know, let's find out what are the best grasses for the tennis. And so through the years, we've done a lot of research and, and that, that data sort of come out and said, you know, for certainly for summer sports, perennial ryegrass is the best grass. So we now focus on which cultivars are the best. So we even now test at any one time, 30 to 40 different cultivars of perennial ryegrass. Um, there's hundreds of different ones out there, but they're all specific for different sports. Um, so we always concentrate on the ones that are best for tennis. Um, and then every four years, we'll retest loads of different grasses. And every four years in the trial, all the ones that aren't very good get, 
get dumped and then anything that's new that's come on the market they will then make up the rest of the spaces that are available and then we go through that same regime of drying the grasses out we've created a special machine that that replicates a, a player's footwear so we actually wear the grass out uh, in our trials and then see how quickly it, it sort of recovers and how how quickly it wears and, and how how we can try and slow it down um, we, we will pick cultivars that might potentially not look very green in winter but they are very green and hardy in summer so if, you, if I was working at a Premier League club the grasses that I'd be looking for would be the ones that give me a good winter colour rather than a good summer colour so each sport has its own criteria of what it needs uh, and I think that's one of the things that amazes a lot of people when you explain about the in-depth that, that high-end and high-level sport goes to you know as much as a player now looks at diet training sleeping you know where the red zone is when you should and shouldn't train we're doing exactly the same with our grass plants and making sure that our nutrition making sure that it's the right one making sure that the plants always hydrated and making sure that when our athlete which is the grass goes into its competition which is the championships it's as it's as healthy as a Djokovic it's as healthy as a Federer the day one of the championships and then we've got to survive that 13 days like the players have to what is the length that those courts will be at for the championships and how does that compare to the length throughout the rest of the year so for our playing season it's eight millimeters um, and again, that's been determined by years of research with the SCRI. We've, we've looked at different lengths of grass um, and we eventually um, came to eight millimeters. Now, the reason why it's eight millimeters is that it's, it's long enough that there's enough grass on the plant to be able to photosynthesize and actually survive and be healthy. But again, it, it's short enough that it's not going to be a problem for players for slipping. They can get a good traction um, and they can actually get a good grip. So eight millimeters for us um, works really well. Now other tennis tournaments could well go to seven millimeters or six millimeters, depending on what their venue is, because unlike any other venue, most other tennis tournaments that are played on grass, well, in fact, all of them that are played on grass, are pretty much a draw of 32 and it's a seven-day tournament, whereas for the championships, it's such a unique beast that we have to just think completely out of the box in everything we do. Our practice week is longer than most complete tournament. We're, we have a nine-day practice window before we even kick off. So we need to make sure that the grasses and the, and the regimes that we have um, can withstand pretty much a month of, of tournament, really, for us. It's, it's nearly that length of time. So eight millimeters for, for the playing season, outside of the championships and outside of the playing season, um, once we've renovated, uh, our, our winter height cut is 13 millimeters, and that will just be kept like that across the board for winter. And then as we get to April, um, we reduce the height of cut by a millimeter a week. So through April and early May, We've dropped from, from the 13 mil down to eight. Um, and then we're opening the grass courts again for our membership by mid-May. When you get into championship play, there's a whole routine that you do before play and after play to maintain yep. those courts. Can you kind of take us through what the day in the life is during the champs? Sure. So, so the guys will be coming in around 6.30 in the morning. Uh, the covers will come off. 
the, the teams will go out and they will they, each each member of staff is um, has a specific job for the championship so they'll either go out and mow cut two or three courts there'll be another team coming up behind marking them out the guys will go out you'll see it in the morning with the mops um, and that's the sort of attention to detail that we do we will actually go out believe it or not and we'll, we'll mop the courts because when the guys are cutting them in the morning as the mowers go over the top of the white lines it it's, it ghosts them it, it, it sort of drags the white lines to the backs of the court so we then mop them just to sort of make that disappear so the guys will do that um, we're normally finished by about 9 30 quarter to 10 with all the courts well then once the public um, come in at around about half 10 we'll make sure that all the courts are set up and prepped ready for play so once once spectators are coming in they get a feel for the championships because the nets are ready the umpire's chairs is out and it's ready to go and then we'll pretty much go through the day depending on what the weather's like as you know we'll either be hanging around the ref's office looking at rain clouds and making sure that they they don't don't affect our day or hopefully it's a nice sunny day and we we can relax a little bit and, and just make sure that there's no issues on anything and then what Practice courts then close at 7 p.m. Every, every evening. So what we do is, is the team that have done all the morning jobs will then go to practice in the evening. Uh, and then we will cut. We will mark out all of those courts. We will then hoover all the courts just to make get all the loose grass debris off the top. Um, and then we will irrigate the courts because we don't want the courts getting too hard. So as part of our morning um, setup, we will have uh, the STRI again that, that are our partners. They will come in and they will start measuring all the courts. So if I go around in the mornings and you might have seen them with those, um, the yellow um, sort of hardness reading measurement things they have and they will drop a weight on, on each court. Um, they'll do it 150 times on each court uh, and then you'll get a mean average of how hard the court is. We'll then get all of that data um, in the afternoon for, for all of the courts and then together with our irrigation engineers, we'll then write a, an irrigation program for each court, depending on how hard they are. So courts are measured in gravities, um, and, the, and the ideal gravity number for the start of the championships is 200. Mm -hmm. And then what will happen is, is that you can control that number by irrigating. So if you've got fairly overcast, damp championships, those numbers won't go up very, very quickly, so you can put less water on. If you've got hot championships, the moisture is getting drawn out from the sun. Those hardness readings will go up quite quickly, which means that we just have to put a little bit more water on in the evening. So that's what we'll do in the evening over on practice. We'll then put the irrigation through. The covers will go on. Um, we're normally finished in practice by about mm -hmm. half past nine. Um, and then depending on as and when championship courts finish for the evening, they will get hoovered and watered but not cut. And then, in the, and then the covers will go on. And then normally the ground staff, after starting at around about 6.30 in the morning, an average, an average day they'll probably be leaving about 10 o'clock in the evening. Um, again, if it's been a wet day and the roofs are on centre and one, uh, we can play until uh, 11 o'clock. There's probably about an hour, three quarters of an hour of prep work on those courts after play. So... Worst case scenario is the guys are coming in at 6.30 and they're going home about midnight. Um, and then it's a bit like Groundhog Day. It's, it's, it's eat, sleep and, and repeat, really. So that's what they'll do for 13 days. It's just you, you can almost hear um, Bonnie and Cher 
song and, and you kind of turn it off and then you wake up and you kind of do your thing again. So, it, you, you use the term hoovering. What exactly yeah. is that? So we have um, petrol hoovers or like a vacuum. So okay. they're, they're sort of petrol powered vacuums and they've got big um, sort of baskets sort of um, What's the best way to describe them? I guess they would be um, big Hoover, um, big vacuum bags. And we literally will run over the whole of the court. And it takes about half an hour to vacuum each court. Um, and it just takes all the loose debris because as you will know from, from the players, trainers, they've got very small, sharp dimples underneath. And, and on, a, on a fairly fresh court in the first week, it's almost like a cheese grater. And it actually slices into the, into the grass blades and will shear them off. And that's why you'll you're slowly see baselines through the championships wear out. The actual grass plants themselves are all intact. It's just that the player's shoes have, have sheared off the grass plant itself. So the hoovers will just take up that loose debris so it doesn't accumulate over a few days to the point where it becomes loose material and, and potentially a, a, slip, a slip factor for players. How important is Middle Sunday? Um, for us, it's probably the most important thing. And that's one of the things that I'll always try, if I can, in front of media or players, try and explain <clears throat> from an agronomist's point of view why, why the middle Sunday is so important. Because you'll have a lot of players that, you know, and rightly so, they, they, they don't necessarily have to know the ins and outs of, you know, growing grass. Um, but they'll go from tournament to tournament to say, well, we play a middle Sunday on every other tournament, so why can't we play at Wimbledon? So it, it just affords us that, that sort of, that one day to get a little bit more water on the court. So as I was saying earlier about the hardness readings, so when we go into the championships, we, we, we try and start at around about 200 gravities, which is a fairly hard surface. Um, if you bear in mind that a Premier League football pitch will be around about 80 gravity. So we're kind of, you know, getting up towards, you know, two and a half times firmer than a football pitch just to start. And then as you go through the championships, if it's a fairly hot championships, you could potentially get up to around about 260, 270 gravities by, by the end of the, of the first Saturday. Now, if you was to continue to, to to escalate in those numbers, by the time you got to the finals weekend, the grass would die because it would just have not enough moisture in the soil for it to survive and the, and the whole thing would just go completely brown. So what it helps us do is, is that if we can keep the numbers below 260 up until end of play on that first Saturday, it just means that we can double the amount of water that we've normally put on, soften the court slightly during the day and then they slowly start to absorb the water again. So by the time we get to the second Monday, we're back down to around 200, and then we can then just go through that same process. Now, we, there's always that argument when people say, but we played Middle Sunday in the past, so why can't we play it all the time? So the argument to that is, the reason why we are playing a Middle Sunday, or playing a Middle Sunday in the first place is because we're behind schedule, there's been and that's normally because of rain. When it's raining, it's normally cooler, and the actual grass plant itself is under less stress and less pressure. Plus, you played less hours, so the plant itself and the amount of hours you played in that first week is a lot less. 
So by the time you've played that middle Sunday, you normally find that the gravity numbers aren't as high as they normally are. But by the time you're going into the second week, you can get away with it. Whereas if you get a hot championships, you don't really need that middle Sunday. So it's kind of, it's our buffer that we can use it if we need to, um, but we'd, we'd sooner not if we could because, because of the health of the plant. You've mentioned staffing. What is the, the number like for your year-round staff? So we have, on the ground staff, we have 16 full-time groundsmen. Uh, that includes uh, two irrigation engineers. Uh, on top of that, we have two full-time mechanics as well. Um, and then for, for, the, for the playing season itself, from April through to October, we then have an additional 12 seasonal staff that will come in and, and help us through the season. That will be made up from um, students from colleges. They'll, they'll do a placement with us and they will, will spend the season with us. Um, Australians, uh, people from New Zealand, when it's their, their off-peak, they'll come and work a season with us. Um, we've had Canadians, Americans in the past um, coming to work with us as well. We had, um, we had a girl with us two years ago from Ohio State come work with us for the summer. Um, and it's great because you're getting different different cultures, different people from different parts of the world that potentially might be working in different sports. So you'll get people working in golf, uh, you know, and, and in cricket and different sports. But then they come here and they go, oh, have you ever thought of doing it this way or doing it that way? So you actually then get an exchange of, of practices and stuff. And you can kind of say, well, actually, that's quite interesting. We wouldn't exactly do it that way. But if we were to slightly tweak it and do it like this or sort of say to them, yeah, once they've then done a season with us, they'll sort of say, oh, no, you can't do that because we understand what it is. So it's quite good. So we end up for the championships with around about 30 staff that, that just concentrate on the tennis itself. And then we have the students as well. So all of the, all of the, the court attendants that pull all the covers come under our remit as well. So, so we've got another 200 of those. So we normally go from um, a, a quiet little group of 18 of us um, just sort of chewing the fat and chilling out through through the through the winter and stuff to a to a championships where I have a, a team of around about 250 staff uh, for the, for, to to sort of deliver the, the courts. Covering the courts is something to see because the last thing that you can probably have happen is the courts get very wet sure. when a rainstorm comes up. What is the practice regimen for those teams to learn how to get that court covered as quickly as they do? Yeah, so, so we recruit more often than not. You, out of the 200 that we get, they're normally university students. Um, so you normally get two-thirds come back the following year, and then it, you're, you're never really replacing too many. And then, so it, it's quite good because we, we normally, about three weekends before the championships, we'll, we'll start having um, sort of practice days where they'll come in on a Saturday and a Sunday, and then we'll we'll sort of have practice runouts and stuff like that and we'll have drills. Um, and then I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but around the grounds, underneath some of the score scoreboards, you'll have um, little sort of digital dials with numbers, a number scheme on. So if it's a zero, it means that we're, we're not on standby, just chill out. As soon as the referee's office puts up the number one, all the students automatically know wherever they are on the grounds they're on standby. They have to be sat by the side of their court. Um, and then it goes to a number two, and it goes all the way up to seven. So you either cover the courts, inflate, deflate, take the covers off. Um, 
And we also, as well as that, have um, two um, weather companies on site as well, tracking weather systems coming in. So it's the thing is with, with the rain, it, it doesn't matter when it starts raining because you'll play until the surface becomes too greasy to, to get, for a player to get traction. So that's very independent on each court. Sometimes you'll have it raining on the southern end of the complex and then the practice facility carry on because the rain just doesn't... doesn't. So we have to be quite sort of um, independent per court of, of, of what we kind of how we cover the courts and stuff. So I think where it comes into its own is with these weather companies, they know exactly when they're tracking cloud, when it's going to stop. So at least we can then say, right, it's raining quite heavily now, but in 30 minutes time, it's pretty much going to stop. So 10 minutes before it stops, we can start deflating covers. We can then give players and, and the broadcasters the heads up that, you know, play, it looks like, you know, it's going to stop raining in 10 minutes. It looks like we can get play going again. So that's, for us, that's the important part, is, is making sure that we can get play back on as, as soon as possible, because you don't want people sitting around not doing anything. So if we can preempt and just have as little downtime as we can, um, and again, we have to drill it into the students that once we do pull the covers, it's, it's in military fashion. You know, they've got sort of 30 seconds to get the neck down, posts off, chairs off. They get, you know, flung over the sides or whatever and, and get that court covered and make sure that we protect that grass. So it's, um, yes, it, it can be quite... Um, impressive to, to watch, sort of watch when the uh, when the covers are getting when the covers are coming across and you've mentioned inflation to deflation yeah. basically pumping air underneath that tarp to get yes. the tarp off the grass what is the benefit of doing that well it, it just means that we can work on them as well so again because it's a living surface if you leave a flat tarps on there it, it can cause the surface to start sweating you can kind of stress the grass out you can kind of encourage disease to start coming in so it, it's kind of twofold really once we've pulled the covers we then inflate them and they, they turn into big domes we then have velcro doors on them so we can then go in and underneath so at the end of play we'll always cover the courts even if it's a really good forecast we'll always cover the courts um just so we're always in control of, of of moisture and making sure that you, know, you don't get any road storms coming in overnight and then if we come in the morning and it's raining the team can still go out and do their job because what they'll do is they've got velcro doors you can go in with the lawn mowers you can go in with the, the marking uh, devices and we can cut and mark the courts and get them all prepped so as soon as it does stop raining we can then get on get the covers off rather than having to wait so um yeah so once it's, it's a really nice it's a nice sight when it's first thing in the morning. It's a nice sort of sunny day and it's kind of six o'clock in the morning. The covers are still up. The big domes are up across the whole venue. It's, a, it's quite a nice sight. And then, um, and then they come down and then mayhem starts. You talked about there being roof now on center and number one court. How has that changed your role in the grass? How has it impacted the surface? Well, originally it was it was one of those big unknowns for Centre Court. I mean, the good thing is is that we've had ten years' experience with Centre Court by the time we got number one. So it was kind of that that transition from a stadium not having a roof and getting one that has been has been very smooth. I think the biggest challenge and the biggest unknown 
for us groundsmen and, and, and for the grass was we didn't quite know what the impact of that roof being closed would have during play on, on, the, on the actual playing surface itself. Now, we knew that, you know, the lights and players playing under, the, under a roof isn't anything new because they do it, you know, for a percentage of, of the tour anyway. But it was just because it's a living surface, if you get an indoor environment, would it cause the plants to, to start to sweat and get slippery? So we had to do a lot of research into air conditioning in and making sure that the courts were air conditioned from the lower bowl all the way, all the way through to make sure that we had that ambient temperature all the way through. So again, with research, it, it was kind of found that if you kind of have around about sort of 20, 22, 23 degrees Fahrenheit or centigrade, should I say, inside the bowl, as you say, you won't want it in Fahrenheit. No, um, please no. <laughs> and then having the right amount of um, humidity in there, it meant that you can control the bowl completely. So what we find now is, is that it actually, the plant prefers center court when the roof's on because it's an, it's an actual, um, it's, it's a constant temperature and it's a constant humidity. So the plant quite likes that consistency throughout the day. It's a lot different if you've got the roof open, there's a, say a wind whipping around inside the bowl. Um, it's a partially cloudy day, so the sun's coming in, it's going out. So it's drying out strange and, and, it, and it's, it's a lot more difficult for the plant. So one of the, the weird things was is that the actual plant itself was actually wearing better under the roof than it was with the roof open. So it, it hasn't really had an effect at all really. If anything, it's been a slight plus for us. We talked about the staff, the seasonal staff, the students who come in and help during the, uh, the championships. You get help from someone else who has the name Rufus. <laughs> who is Rufus and what is their role? So Rufus is the demon uh, hawk that, that flies the grounds. Um, and he pretty much um, does the, the early morning sweep around to make sure that we are... Um, Pigeon free, so um, I'm not so sure what it's like in the in the cities in the US, but we do seem to have a lot of pigeons in in the UK, and it's just making sure that they stay away because um, they're, they're almost like flying rats. They they just don't serve a purpose to anybody. They just they poop everywhere. They land. They just annoy people, and so we bring Rufus in, and he kind of he kind of flies the skies and and keeps everything. He's kind of like He's the police force in the sky for us, so he just keeps everything calm. There was one year recently in 2012 where you had a pretty quick turnaround, less than three weeks after the end of the championships. The Olympics were hosted in London, and the tennis competition was played at the All England Club. What was the challenge to turn the courts back around for another high-level competition in that short period of time? Um, I, I think... It, I think the change for us was, was just trying to regrow that grass. The, the remit that we had from um, the Olympic Committee is that we want day one of the tennis tournament for the Olympics looking like day one of the championships. So that was kind of our challenge. Um, and I think because we knew a good four years before um, the Olympics event itself that we had it, we then decided to do some trials. So as soon as the championships had finished, we would then put aside two of our practice courts 
Um, and then we do little trials on, you know, pre-germinating seed, certain fertilizers, whether it be granular or liquid. And we actually then played around for 16 days to see what we could grow back 16 days after the tournament. And we've done it for four years and, there, and it was a bit of a trial and error really. And over those three years, we got to the point where we had kind of, we had sourced these special um, sort of brewing tubs that they make beer out of, which are like tubs that you, you pour hot water into the hops and it starts to ferment. So we kind of looked at those and what we ended up doing was is that at the end of the first week of the championships, we then got these tubs and then we started to germinate grass seed in these tubs. So by the time we got to the end of the championships, we'd accelerated that five to seven day that, that we would normally have for over-sowing and germinating grass seed. We actually done it artificially in these tubs. And then as soon as the championships had finished, we then planted them out onto the baselines and that was actually growing as soon as we was putting them down. So it's kind of saved ourselves five days of that 16. Um, and then we would just give little bits of liquid fertilizer every other day just to grow them back in. Um, but again, we got fortunate in 2012 because that year's championships was, was a fairly wet one. So again, the grass plant itself wasn't under stress for the whole of the championship. So where we would normally have quite a worn baselines, they weren't actually as worn out as much as what they potentially could have been. So it meant there was just slightly less work for us to do to get them ready. So, but again, that's one of the beauties of, of what we do is that it just threw up another challenge. So for four years, it was thrown back to us, right, get it ready. Um, and we've, we've done it. So it was, um, it was a great challenge. And, it, and it's just strange now that I always remember in 2008 when we first were told that we had the Olympics thinking, oh, it's four years, we've got ages yet, it's not. And then all of a sudden, it's now eight years since we've had the Olympics. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's 12 years since we first realized that we were doing it. And you just find that, you know, time just goes so quickly now. You think you've got all the time in the world, and then before you know it, it's gone and it's behind you, and, and you're on to the next, you know, the next challenge. So, again, they're all, they're all good things that, you know, when you kind of hang your boots up at Wimbledon, you can sort of say, you know, we were involved in the creation of a, a roof a retractable roof on a grass court. We was involved in an Olympics. You know, there's all these things that just keep evolving over the, over time. But but it's just so great, and it's and it's just always evolving. It's just it's just great to be a part of. There's been an evolution in the way tennis is played, and it's very clearly illustrated on the courts at Wimbledon. If you see older footage, the tee is worn, and you know, it's, grass used to be known for the servant volley, and people were crashing the net. So. They'd serve and come right in and wear that spot out near yep. the net. Now you hardly see anywhere there. Yep. The way the game has evolved to be so baseline focused, has that changed what you need to do? Well, I, I, I think back in the 90s when we started working with the STRI, when I was, when we was talking about it earlier, I was looking at different grasses. Now, going back to the, the creeping grasses, the bents and the fescues, because they grow laterally as well as, as well as vertically as well, it just means that they become quite, they can become quite spongy and soft over time, and that's where you get the servant volley because the energy of the ball that was being hit was being absorbed into the into the turf. Once we realised through research that those weren't the best grasses, once we started going with perennial ryegrass because it's not a 
it only grows vertically, it doesn't grow horizontally. So it means that it doesn't form that thatch layer. You have grass and then you have a layer of soil, which means that the quartz become a lot firmer. So, it, so as they started, you know, evolving and we started to strip out all of the old grasses and put in the new ones, you were finding that the energy of the ball wasn't being absorbed in the turf anymore because the new ryegrass, because it wasn't as thatchy, was actually rebounding the ball. So it was actually meaning that normally because the, the energy of the ball was being absorbed, the players were having to search for the ball and coming into the court to try and find that ball because the ball was staying low. Now you were finding that the ball was actually pushing the player back because the servant volley was almost going away. So by the end of the 90s, we'd realized that the grasses that we needed were the perennial rye grasses. We'd, over time, slowly started to bring them in, but it coincided at the end of the 90s with a new machine called, the, uh, called phrase mowing. And it's, and it's a machine that's kind of designed from the, the road tarmacking machines where they skim off the tarmac of a, of a road and then re-tarmac it. And this, this device was designed on that. So we can now shave off and plane off the playing surface and restart it. So what we've done in, in 2001, at the end of the championships, we planed off the courts because this machine was available. So then for 2002, we had no thatch and all perennial ryegrass. And that's when, you know, Leighton Hewitt, the hardcourt specialist, then came and won Wimbledon because it was from the back of the court. Now, I think also probably what you would have found as well is that a lot of the juniors, because the grass court season is so short and so small, where the old guard of grass court players, three of the four Grand Slams were played on grass. So most of the season was played on grass and everybody knew how to play on it. And it got to the point where there was only sort of four weeks of the year that was actually being played on grass because of the two-week gap between us and Roland Garros and the championships itself. So more and more players and juniors weren't practicing on grass because you needed to play on hard courts and clay courts because that was the predominant force of what you needed. So you were then getting a lot of hard court and clay court players playing that type of match on grass because they didn't know how to serve and volley. So I think it's probably an accumulation of, of all of those factors. You know, we changed the grasses because they were the most wear tolerant. So we changed those grasses purely as a, an agronomy um, decision. It wasn't trying to, I know there's a lot of stories about us trying to slow the game down and change the game uh, and, and trying to blame the grass for that. But it was a purely anagronic decision that by going to perennial ryegrass, the grasses would be a lot stronger and last a lot longer. Um, and because now the players are pushed behind the baselines, it just means that there is more grass in the body of the court, which means that you, you, you won't see a bad bounce at Wimbledon anymore. So the, the fear always used to be from my predecessors as head groundsman, by the time you got to the, the finals weekend of the 70s and 80s, you, the, the, they, was, they was always worried about a, a, a finals match, whether it be the, you know, the doubles, the singles, the ladies or the gents, being decided on a bad bounce. And whereas now you won't, you know, you just, just take the men's final of last year. You know, it's, you think that the Nadal Federer of 2008 at Wimbledon, you're thinking, 
can that ever be topped? And then you turn around and you get that five setter uh, that we saw last year and, and you just think to yourself, not that the court had anything to do with that, but because you don't see bad bounces anymore, it's purely down to how good those players are to force the other player to make the mistake. It's never going to be the playing surface forces you into a mistake because of a bad bounce. So it's kind of, you know, our philosophy, certainly on the ground staff, is that we want the grass courts to be the canvas of a picture, but the players paint, paint the picture. The canvas is just there. It's just the background. It, it shouldn't be spoken about. You know, we should get to the end of the championships and everybody needs to be talking about how great the tennis was. We don't, you know, as groundsmen and as turf managers, we don't need to be told, oh, the, the courts were fantastic again this year. We know the courts are fantastic because they don't get talked about. So as long as no one says anything about the grass, then we know that we've done our job. Um, and they sit in the background. They have, they have a platform for the players. Um, and like I say, we just sort of sit in the background and hope that the tennis does the talking. You have the championships in June and July. You have members who play tennis then throughout the year. There's also croquet. How much croquet is played at Wimbledon? Well, we have, we have three croquet lawns. Um, and like you say, we are the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. So we have, we have around about, well, all, all members can play croquet. We probably have about a hardcore of 30, 35 members of the club that, that will regularly play croquet. So again, the croquet season runs from April through till the end of September. Um, and that's played over the, over the northern side of the practice courts. Um, those croquet lawns are, have a tennis specification built to them. So what we do is, is in, in early June, we, we stop playing croquet on them. We then, they have post sockets in them. We then mark them out as tennis courts. And then we have an additional six practice courts over there that supplement the championships. And then post-championships, we then... Um, give them a little mini renovation uh, and then get them back in within two weeks of the, of the championships finishing back to, to croquet for our members. There's a lot more in your role than just the courts as well. Now you have horticulture in your title and there's a theme around the grounds to create this English garden feel. How many flowers do you bring in for the championships and how important is that to the club to have that look and feel throughout the whole venue for the spectators? Yeah, well, it always used to be, up until 2014, it always used to be um, a contractor that used to come in and, and, and liaise with us and, and liaise with the club. Um, but when I took over from my predecessor, Eddie Seawood, in, in, two, in 2012, there was kind of like this desire to sort of be in control more of everything. Um, and we'd had discussions within the club to sort of say, it'd be really nice if we could you know, take this in-house, in have more control about how the grounds look. And to be fair, the grounds have always looked special. Um, it just meant that we could add that extra little bit of detail to what we wanted to do. So in, in 2014, we, decided, we took it in-house um, um, and we, were, we accrued uh, the team that already here. Uh, we took them on as well. So we, we've now got our own head gardener. We now have seven staff. Um, and I think one of the things that, one of the things that we always try to achieve here is that if you come to the championships, we want you to leave thinking, wow, there is nowhere else on the planet like this. You know, we want that, 
once in a lifetime experience with someone. Um, and, and you don't really get to feel the landscape when you're watching the championships on TV because you see the tennis courts, you see the stadium. It's not until people actually turn up here for the championships and see how, how much attention to detail that we do for landscaping and all of our, you know, our planting, all the hanging baskets, all of the, all of the modules that, you know, and the, um, the juniors that go around the number one stadium. Once you see all of the colour schemes and everything like that, you just realise how much effort and what sort of um, sort of effort goes into sort of delivering the championships. It's then them sort of things of once you come to the championships, you get that wow factor. So we kind of we we on our forty-two acre site, we're probably over planting with about thirty thousand plants for the championships. Um, we have around about one hundred and fifty hanging baskets. We have nearly 600 modules that go around uh, number one court. Um, it's, it's a big, big operation. And then we have a charity sale after the championships where people can come and buy all of the plants um, that, we over, that, we, that we plant in and around the, the annuals each year. So people can actually buy a bit of Wimbledon and plant them back into their own gardens and, and grow them on from there. How did you first get involved with Wimbledon? So originally, I... When I first left school, my passion always has been um, cooking and being a chef. I've always loved that. So when I first left school, um, I kind of went into um, went to college, trained to be a chef, um, and then I was chefing until I was about the age of 22. Um, and then I got a little bit disillusioned by it because you kind of, when you're a chef, you either you either work in a mundane Monday to Friday business, which is boring or you work in the top hotels in London, which means that you're working days, nights, weekends. And, and I was at that tipping point of, you know, did I, you know, what, what sort of avenue did I want to go down? And at, at that time, my mum was um, part of the horticultural team at uh, a local college, um, which was quite well known in the sports turf world called Norwood Hall. Um, and she said, well, look, while you're still living at home, you've, you've always liked being in the garden as well. Why don't you go back to college and, and sort of retrain again? So because I was still living at home and I could afford to, I kind of went back full time to college. Um, I'd done my sort of horticultural qualifications and then tagged onto the back of that over the three years, some sports turf qualifications. And again, in a very fortunate position that my... Um, my sports turf tutor at, at college um, knew Eddie Seward, who was, who was the current head groundsman at Wimbledon at the time. So he said, look, they do placements for students every year, three placements every year. Um, would you be interested if I had a word with Eddie <clears throat> to go and do a placement at the end of your three-year stint and you can work summer with them and then go out and get yourself a job? So I, was, yeah, I saw it kind of like, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, so I managed to get the placement here, <clears throat> unbeknown to the three students that were here in 1995, is that one of the groundsmen was retiring that year, and Eddie had wanted to get three students in to then continue with their education, uh, train them, and give them a full-time job and, and become part of the team. So I was, I was the lucky one out of the three that got offered the full-time job, um, and then just continued my education at college, one day a week while I was working here. Um, 
and then through the years I've kind of picked up different qualifications <clears throat> and got my degree and my my um, pesticide consultancy license and stuff like that on behalf of the club and then and then fortunately through the years through sort of in 2000 and, um, 2002 I got promoted to senior groundsman um, and then later on uh, I kind of then become Eddie's right-hand man and then in 2010 Eddie announced his retirement gave the club 12 months notice that he was retiring um, so I thought to myself, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I went for the job. Um, it was one of those jobs where there were people from all over the world applying for it. Um, and I, I don't know whether I battled the committee with too much technology and stuff, but I kind of, kind of worked the angle. I couldn't really say, you know, I've come here with great experience. You know, I can bring this, that and the other. I kind of went the opposite way and said, you know, I've worked in here. This is such a unique environment. There's nowhere else in the world that's like this. You know, I know what makes this place tick. I'm out, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I think outside the box and I think I'm the perfect man to take it on. And I happened to convince them. So, yeah, so in 2011, I kind of shadowed um, the head groundsman then for the year. And then I took over in 2012. So the idea was, is that I ran the 2012 championships and he ran the Olympics. Unfortunately, um, Eddie became slightly, slightly ill, which meant that I had to kind of not fully take on the Olympics, but I was more involved in the Olympics and the championships that year. But I think in hindsight, it was probably a good thing because it just forced me to take responsibility and get on with it. Um, and, and sort of since then, it's, it's kind of grown. So my role itself has grown. We've taken landscape in-house since we've... Um, since we've gone to the three-week gap, um, I do a lot more um, consultancy work on behalf of the club with the ATP and the WTA for, for the pre-Wimbledon events. So, you know, we've had uh, a direct impact in Mallorca, um, the grass court venues that are now opening in, in sort of Germany, plus the ones in the UK we give technical support and advice to. So that's part of my role as well. So I do a lot of visiting of, of other other tennis clubs, grass court clubs, um, just to give them support and just to see what they need and make sure that they're kind of not necessarily following what we do, but we kind of all need to be kind of, you know, doing the same thing because what we, what we need is, is the 13 grass court events now that, that, that prelude um, the championships need to be to the point where they've got to be playing very similar to the championships. So by the time the players get to the championships, they're used to playing on this surface. There's no point in them playing on slightly different grass courts for four or five weeks, rocking up to, to Wimbledon and then going, wow, these are different to the ones I've been playing on. So again, it's very important that, that we make sure that the pyramid of grass court season is is in tune and it's, it's kind of driven towards the pinnacle of the championship. So... I'm kind of, you know, my, my role grows and grows every year, which is, which is great. What do you find is the greatest misconception people have about what you guys do? I, I think the two biggest questions that I get asked is, it's only grass, isn't it? And the other <laughs> one is, what do you do for the other 50 weeks of the year? So it's quite nice to actually explain, you know, how involved it is to sort of, to maintain grass. Now, most people will have grass in their backyards all over the world so because of that people go 
well, I grow grass in my back garden. It's, it's not that difficult. And to be fair, it's not. I think the challenge is, is making it a playing surface good enough for elite sport. That's the challenge um, that I think that we always have. And again, I, I, I go back to the very beginning of, of the conversation. The biggest challenge is, is the fact that it's a, it's a natural living surface and no two years are ever the same. So when you get through a championships and everything's been successful and the, the, the tournament referee comes into center court and says, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the 2019 championships. You punch the air and go, yes, because it's finished. But at the same time, you then give your, you, you afford yourself 24 hours to pat yourself on the back and say, do you know what lads? Fantastic job. Well done. Go home, celebrate, come back Tuesday because we need to get ready for the next year because you're only as good as the next championships. And when you do the end of season renovation, you're not doing the, the, um, the repairs from the season just gone. You're getting the courts ready for the following season. So if you don't do it right then, you'll get found out the following year. So for us, the most important time of the year is, for us, is, is August, September, October. Those three months, if we get that right, then then we'll, we, we put ourselves in a good place for the championships. If we get that wrong, then we'll chase our tails all the way through to the first day of the championships. I do have to ask, your garden at home, is it perfection as well, or is that just running ragged? Well, I've got two young kids, a dog, and an inflatable swim pool that goes up for the summer. So it's not, I try my best because now that I spend so much time in the office, it's my little oasis when I go home because I don't get to cut grass anymore and I don't get to play around with, with toys uh, on the courts. So that becomes my little oasis. So my lawn normally looks really good in April and May. And then because I'm pretty much camped at work for June and July, by the time I get to August, it's around my knees and it looks absolutely crap. And I spend August, September, October making it look good again, ready for the winter. And then I kind of go through the winter. And I, so I would say April, May, I get two months of the year where it looks okay. The rest of the year, it's, it's pretty much like a, the old saying, you know, a mechanic always drives a crap car because... They don't have time to work on their own. I would say that's the same, that's the same for my lawn. Um, if you saw my lawn at interview, you wouldn't give me the job. That's for sure. <laughs> I close every episode with the set pieces. Uh, questions for everybody who is gracious enough to be a guest on the podcast. So I will start in with you on speaking of podcasts and newsletters. What are you consuming to help you stay informed or keep learning? Um, I would say it's, I probably spend my, most of my life trawling Twitter and LinkedIn just, just in the sports turf world because this, cause it's, it's, like most, it's like most industries now. Everything, you know, what, what was good yesterday has completely changed tomorrow. So it's, it's making sure that, that you're aware of all those changes. Now, whether those changes are right or wrong, it, is immaterial. You just got to make sure that you're aware of those changes and whether those changes are going to be beneficial to, to yourself and to the championships. I tend to be consumed completely by grass, weather, and tennis. Uh, so most of my things will be, you know, sports turf journals, the um, 
the GMA websites, the, the Grounds Management Association, which is our kind of affiliated body in the UK, just to, just to see what other sports are doing, you know, touching base with other, my counterparts in different sports, seeing what they're doing. So it tends to be all sports turf related, which to a lot of people is very boring. They switch off when I start talking about it. Is that the same then on the social media? Are those the, the yeah, accounts absolutely. you most want to follow? Yeah, and yours. I, I follow you as well, obviously, but, um, <laughs> but the rest of it tends to be sports turf. What are a couple <coughs> books you'd recommend? Um, again, I probably don't read as much as I should, purely because I'm, I'm camped here and have young children, but I think probably two books that, that have stood out for me is probably um, The Moon's a Balloon, the autobiography by David Niven. It's just really interesting to find out about, you know, his life growing up in the sort of 20s and 30s and then going to war and then kind of reliving those massive Hollywood sort of the heydays of the, the 60s and stuff. It's really, really interesting. And I think for me, it's always autobiographies and it's how they're written. If they've got a real good ghostwriter with them, they can just almost paint that picture. Um, so I'd say that was definitely one. I think the other one that does exactly the same is, is probably Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography, where he kind of explains about growing up in the, in the shipyards of Glasgow and, and how he almost, you know, he got injured at 21 as a footballer and just thought, you know, what am I going to do next? And then ends up, you know, pretty much setting history that will never, ever be repeated. So those two, I, I would sort of say to anyone, read them because I'm not a great reader, but I was almost, I was completely dragged into them. It's almost like opening the book, like Joey Tribbiani when he was visiting London and he tried to step inside the map. It's kind of like that. It draws you into the book. So I would say to anyone, it, those would definitely be two that I would, would read again. I love that analogy with Joey Tribbiani. That's pretty good. <laughs> Speaking of Joey, what are some TV shows that you're streaming? Um, so I've just finished um, Afterlife Season 2 uh, with Ricky Gervais. And there's, a, and there's another good one that, that's just being out that's on Sky at the moment um, called Gangs of London, which was quite a good one. Um, my wife's really into, uh, on Netflix, there's one about the Vikings and stuff. I tried to get into it, but I just, I just couldn't get it. And she's kind of just completely absorbed in it and says, you've got to watch it, you've got to watch it. So I quite like watching anything to do with Ricky Gervais, really, um, on Netflix. Um, I could watch him all day. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, for my sins, I'm an Arsenal, Arsenal football fan. So the one thing that I, definitely sticks out for me is the 1979 FA Cup final. We played, um, we played Manchester United. I was, I was 10 at the time. We played Manchester United at Wembley. Um, it, we were kind of 2-0 up at half-time. We were just cruising along. It was kind of like a done deal. I was at home with my, my dad and family, all my family and uncles and stuff, all Arsenal fans. And it was kind of, they're all celebrating, thinking this is a done deal. Second half, go through the motions. And then kind of in the 87th minute, Manchester United score a goal. And in the 88th minute, they score another goal to equalise. And the room was just completely deflated. And then we literally, from kickoff, ran up the other end and scored again to go 3-2 up. And I just remember my family household just jumping up and down, just going absolutely mental. And 
And although that's kind of 40 years ago, it, I can, it almost feels like yesterday. And it gives me goosebumps and makes the hair stick up on the back of my neck when I just think about that day. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I do. So I'm quite fortunate. All the credentials, because as you would know, the, the championship balls have the, the year printed on them as well. Um, which outside, if you buy Wimbledon championship balls outside of the championships, they just say Wimbledon high vis. Whereas for the championships, they say Wimbledon high vis 2019, 2020 or whatever. Um, so I always keep my credentials and I keep one of the tennis balls that haven't been used. So I've got a tennis ball and a credential um, for each year that I've been here. So they're just kind of stuck in the box at home. So and I kind of keep wanting to go on to Amazon and buy some of those, <clears throat> those, those large clear perspect baseball sort of boxes that you can put the balls in and you can buy them in like blocks of fives and stuff like that. So I think by the time I retire... I think what I'll do is I'll probably end up buying three or four of those and just on my, on my mantelpiece, I'll probably have a, a brand new tennis ball with the credential card with it for every year that I was kind of here. So, um, and I'll look back and think, where did that 35 years go? But, but not the towel? Um, well, yeah, well, if I end up using the towels. That's the problem. And then they start ending up um, kind of getting to the point where, you have to throw them out. Problem is, is that credentials and balls don't take up any space. If I then start having, ha having <clears throat> already done 25 championships, um, those towels start to take up a bit of space. So I'll stick to the balls. That's smaller. Yeah, I really enjoyed the time. It was great to uh, get to know you a little bit more and what you do a lot more. And certainly understand why you hope that people don't necessarily know your name during the championships but you guys do a, a great deal of work and there's a lot of passion into what you do so thank you for sharing that with me today it's a pleasure good to, good to speak to you again hopefully see you in in 2021 in, absolutely in fingers are crossed yes it really is incredible how much goes into preparing those courts and not only the science of it but also the passion from neil and the ground staff that they pour into their work they are a very proud group I'd like to thank Neil for his time and thanks to you for listening. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. And if you liked it, tell a friend. Don't forget, you can find more information on what we discussed in this episode in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. While you're there, drop us an email and we will slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Muche edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.